The sermon text for today is Genesis 9. We'll be considering verses 1 through 17. And the New Testament reading for today is, is Romans chapter 2. We'll look at verses 1 through 11. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let us go now to Romans chapter 2 and consider verses 1 through 11. Romans 2.1, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first 
and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it now and especially our application of it to our lives today. Our text today in Genesis 9 can be broken into two parts. In verses 1 through 7, God commissions and blesses the new humanity as they come off of the ark. In verses 8 through 17, God establishes His covenant with Noah just as He has prom- had promised to do. First, let us consider the blessing of God pronounced upon the new humanity beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 9. There we read these words, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now this language should sound very familiar to you. It is almost identical to what God said to Adam and Eve after he created them from the dust of the ground. I hope that you remember Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 where we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was Genesis 1, 27-28. Adam and Eve were blessed by God to multiply and to fill the earth. And now that very same blessing, notice, is pronounced upon Noah and his sons. The next few chapters of Genesis will describe the fulfillment of this blessing as the earth will indeed be repopulated by the offspring of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In verse 2 we read, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. This, This statement also corresponds to the statement that was made to Adam and Eve, although it is somewhat different. After God created Adam and Eve, He blessed them. We just read that. And then He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was the task that was given to Adam and Eve. They were to subdue and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, God's words to Noah and his sons correspond to this, but they are somewhat different, aren't they? Uh, To them, God said, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heaven and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They are delivered. So notice that the language here is far more harsh. Uh, the The terminology used is actually militaristic. Uh, When compared to what was said to Adam and Eve, one gets the impression that by the days of Noah, uh, there was more hostility between man and the animal world than at the time of creation. And indeed, we are to recognize this, that the sin of Adam and the sins of the children of Adam have affected the whole creation and not just man. You may see uh, the New Testament teaching about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. And following, the whole creation has been affected by the fall and groans and eagerly awaits for the adoption of the sons of God. Uh, And so here Adam and Eve were commanded to to have dominion and to subdue, to, to manage the created world and to bring it into subjection. That was their job. Here Noah and his sons have a similar task, but there's a harshness 
to the language. There's something militaristic about it. Uh, perhaps there is now more, host- more hostility between the animal world and human beings that needs to be recognized. In verse 3, we read, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Here, uh, the distinction between clean and unclean animals that was imposed upon Noah and his family as they went on to the ark is removed. Do you remember that distinction that was given to them as they went on to the ark? Uh, Noah was to take two of every unclean animal, but of uh, the clean animals, how many animals was Noah to take? Seven, some say seven pairs, seven or, or seven pairs more of the clean animals were to be brought onto the ark. Uh, these Clean animals were to be food for, uh, for uh, Noah and his sons. Uh, in particular, we are to notice that these clean animals were offered up in some of them in, in, in worship to God after Noah and his family disembarked from the ark. But here the distinction between clean and unclean seems to be removed. Noah and his children are now said to be permitted to eat all kinds of meat in the new world. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. God said, just as... I gave Adam and Eve every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its fruit in it for food. So too, now God gives to Noah and his sons every moving thing that lives for food. Commentators do differ over the question, did man begin to eat meat for the first time in the days of Noah? Or did they eat meat before? I think you could understand why some might read this text and think, well, human beings only ate plants from Adam to Noah, but here uh, they're permitted to eat the animals as well and, and everything that moves and has life in it. Um, I tend to think that man ate meat from the beginning of time. Remember, for example, that Cain, the firstborn son of Adam, was a worker of the ground. And that Abel was a keeper of what? Sheep. And that in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, we are told. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. I know that this text does not speak directly to the issue, but the fact that Abel sacrificed a sheep, and not just any part of the sheep, but the fat portions, does seem to indicate to me that they were then being used for food. Um, I don't know if there's any reason to believe otherwise, as if man only ate plants prior to this word spoken to Noah and his sons. But we must ask this question, why then the emphasis upon all kinds of plants as food in Genesis 1, and the emphasis upon all kinds of animals as food in Genesis 9? Do you at least see that pattern? That is, in Genesis 1, when Adam and Eve were created, it was explicitly stated to them that you may have access to all these plants for food. Uh, Here the emphasis is different. You may have access to all these animals for food. My interpretation is not that... Men did not eat animals prior to the days of Noah, but rather there is this emphasis in the text. Why this emphasis? And I think if we were to step back from the story a bit to ask the question, uh, we, we need to ask this question rather. Where was eternal life symbolized for Adam and where was eternal life symbolized for Noah? I think that is what is going on here in this text. Let's, let's step back from it and here's the question. Why plants emphasized here and why animals emphasized here? Well, let's ask this question. Where was eternal life symbolized for Adam 
And where was eternal life symbolized for Noah? Have you ever thought about that? For Adam in the garden, eternal life was to be found in obeying God. That's where eternal life would be found for Adam, in living in perpetual and exact obedience to God. And where was this symbolized except in the trees, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in the tree of life? And remember that here God says, all of these trees are for you, all of these plants are for you, eat them all, except you are to abstain from this tree. Uh, You are not to eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in due time, after passing the test that is imposed upon you, this time of probation, you are to eat of this one, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to be abstained from, and the tree of life is to be eaten. For Noah, eternal life could not be found by eating from those trees. You understand it. That way to life eternal had been closed off because Adam broke that covenant of works. He, He ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, as a manifestation of his inward rebellion against God. For Noah, eternal life could not be found by eating from those trees. But where instead would eternal life be found in the days of Noah and to this present day? It would be found only through the sacrificial shedding of blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9 Uh, 22 states. I I think that is what is going on here in the text uh, to Adam and Eve. It's it's plants that are emphasized. Eat of all the plants, Adam and Eve, except this one, because there the way to life eternal was symbolized before them. It would be earned through their personal and exact and perpetual obedience. The tree symbolized it, but here something different is going on. Animals are emphasized in the day of Noah. Eat of all living things, Noah. Eat of all living things. But then in just a moment we'll see that something is forbidden them. Namely, them partaking of the blood, the lifeblood. I think that is what is going on here in in this text. And so it is my view that men and women have always eaten plants and animals. Ordinarily, all kinds of plants and animals are available to man for food. The distinction between clean and unclean animals were imposed upon Noah and his family while in the ark, and also upon Israel under the old Mosaic covenant. And this was to show that these were a holy people, set apart by God from the nations for a particular purpose. I am here repeating things that I've said in past sermons. The prohibition imposed upon Noah was quickly lifted, though after the flood, Because he was not made into a holy nation permanently. But he returned to walking amongst the nations as a sojourner. This is the biblical pattern, therefore. When God set a people apart as distinct from the nations and made them to function as a picture of his heavenly kingdom on earth, he imposed dietary restrictions upon them. Dietary laws were given to them so as to separate them from from the other peoples of the earth. When his people live as sojourners and exiles, though, in the midst of the nations of the earth, those dietary restrictions are removed, for they ultimately have to do with table fellowship. Are you able to picture this? Think of the dietary restrictions of the Old Covenant and the distinction between clean and unclean imposed upon Noah and his family while on the ark. What do they do? They they make it impossible to have fellowship with those who do not live under those laws. You cannot sit down and eat with them. These dietary restrictions have to do with table fellowship. And so, follow along with me here. From Adam to Noah, God did not have a visible kingdom on earth. He had a people on this earth, but not a visible kingdom. 
From Noah to Moses, God did not have a visible kingdom on earth. And from Christ to the end of the world, God does not have a visible kingdom on earth, a nation, a people peculiarly His, you see. Therefore, the people of God in those eras, from Adam to Noah, and from Noah to to, to Moses, and from Christ to the end of the world, uh, these people are free to eat all kinds of meat. Rise, kill and eat, Christ said to Peter after his resurrection, right? But when Noah was on the ark, and when Israel was called out of Egypt under Moses, the kingdom of God was typified on the earth in a visible way. Where is God's kingdom? There, that nation of Israel was a a kingdom of God typified on earth in a visible way. And these people were set apart as holy unto the Lord to live in a holy realm, the kingdom of God, for a time. And thus dietary restrictions were imposed in order to set them apart. It was true for Noah, but only while he was on the ark, which was a miniature replica of the cosmos, the temple, and a type of the kingdom of God. Though it is true that Noah was free to eat every moving thing that lives after he came off of the ark, notice that one dietary restriction was placed upon him. In verse 4 we read, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So Noah and his sons and all of their descendants were to abstain from eating meat with blood in it. When an animal was slaughtered for food, the blood was to be properly drained before consumption. The same principle was communicated in the law of Moses. So consider Leviticus 17.10 and following. There we read, If any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn amongst them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from amongst his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Any one also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among you who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Law of Moses is quite clear. This law was imposed upon Noah and his sons. It was imposed upon Old Covenant Israel. And the same principle was also communicated in the New Covenant in the days of the early church. Follow along with me here, brothers and sisters. Remember that early in the days of the church, after Christ rose from the dead and ascended, there was tension between the early Jewish converts and the early Gentile converts, as these two people who were once separated by the law of Moses and by dietary restrictions, they were found uh, to be one with Christ. And and there was tension between them. How exactly do we live? Uh, They struggled with this question. And so a council was convened in Jerusalem to address the problems. And here was the advice given to the Gentile Christians, those who were not Jewish, those who never lived under the law of Moses. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not trouble them and impose upon them laws that they do not need to keep. 
but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. It is my view that one, the Gentiles were being asked to be considerate of their Jewish brethren who had been raised under the law of Moses and the dietary restrictions found within. So to be raised under the law of Moses and to be accustomed to eating of these things but not these things and to, to be accustomed to abstaining from blood and then all of a sudden to be in Christian fellowship uh, with Gentiles who were consuming those things, it would have been jarring, it would have been shocking. I think this is a matter of uh, just showing kindness to to the Jewish believers on behalf of the Gentile believers. But two, I think because there were sacrifices still being offered upon the altar in the temple in Jerusalem in those days, respect was still to be shown to the blood of the sacrifice. It needs to be recognized that although technically speaking the old covenant passed away and the new covenant was inaugurated at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Technically speaking, when did the Old Covenant come to an end? And when did the New Covenant begin? We would say death, burial, resurrection of Christ, ascension, day of Pentecost. It all kind of happened right then. That technically speaking is true. But practically speaking, the Old Covenant passed away slowly and did not fully fade until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It took time for it to pass away. The temple would eventually be a destroyed animal sacrifice no longer would happen there in that place. And until that day, the early Christians were to show special respect for blood and were to also abstain from eating it for the sake of not offending their Jewish brethren. So just as every tree was available to Adam and Eve for food, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to be avoided by them, so too every animal was available to Noah and his descendants, but what was to be avoided? The blood was to be avoided. For the blood symbolized life. The blood of animals was to be offered up on the altar to make atonement for sin. When, would that, when did that begin? The offering up of the blood of animals to make atonement for sin. When, when did that begin? I think many would want to say in the days of Moses, in the days of Moses under the Mosaic economy, the, the, the tabernacle was erected and later the temple and there was an altar there and there were animal sacrifices and, and, and that is all true. But I am asking, when did it begin? It began in the days of Adam and in the days of Abel. Abel offered up an animal sacrifice uh, as, as a as a picture of the atoning work of Christ yet to come, you see. And so whenever there is altar worship going on in the world, appointed by God, whenever uh, the blood of animals is being shed on the altar, whenever it was being shed on the altar, uh, blood was to be avoided by the people of God out out of respect for and and an acknowledgement to the fact that, that now, now that we are fallen, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Here is the way to life eternal, no longer through eating of a particular tree and abstaining from another tree, but now now through through the shedding of blood, atonement must be made. Uh, The forgiveness of sins will be found here. 
in the shedding of blood. Their life in the days of Noah and even prior to that, eternal life was found in this. And so the respect was to be shown for the blood of the sacrifice. And this is precisely what is communicated later on in the law of Moses. Again, Leviticus 17, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You and I know what Noah and Moses knew. That it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. We know that. That it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But the blood of bulls and goats shed on the altars from the time of Abel to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ pointed forward to what? Pointed forward to the Christ, to the perfect and human sacrifice offered up by Christ, which would actually make payment for sins. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. God said to Noah, you may eat all kinds of animals. This was because he was not a nation, but a sojourner amongst the nations. But do not eat the flesh with the blood in it, for your life can no longer be found in the tree, but is found in the blood. By the shedding of blood, your sins will be atoned for. In verses 5 and 6 we read, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here we see clearly that the penalty for murder is to be death. If a beast kills a man, that beast shall be put to death by man. And if a man kills a man, here we are talking about intentional and and unjust killing, murder. If a man kills a man, that man shall be put to death. Pay careful attention to the reason given. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man, excuse me, for God made man in his own image. Uh, The sanctity of human life is upheld here in this passage. And here we learn that man, though he has fallen, of course, by this time, he is still an image bearer of God. Uh, Though the image of God be greatly marred and distorted, Because of sin and because of the fall, he is still an image bearer. Man was created upright in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. When he fell, those qualities were lost. It was all bent out of shape and distorted. Uh, but, But he is still an image bearer even after the fall. In verse 7, we again encounter the commission given to Noah and his sons. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. And with these words, the new humanity was commissioned by God and blessed for the accomplishment of that mission in the new world which God brought forth out of the waters of the flood. Do you see the pattern here, brothers and sisters? This is the big picture thing I want you to understand. 
that from the days of Adam to the time of the flood, uh, that was the old world. That was the world that once was, the ancient world, and it ran its course. Creation, fall, judgment, and redemption. An, an entire cycle uh, rolled through. And, and as we look back upon all of that, we see a model and a pattern of what will happen uh, in, in the world today. Uh, from the days of Noah disembarking from the ark until the return of Christ, that same pattern will, 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 will transpire. There is a, a new creation brought out of uh, the waters of the flood. A new humanity was brought forth. They were blessed and commissioned by God uh, to, to fill the earth once again. Uh, and we will see uh, shortly in this story that there's kind of a second fall, if you will, as Noah gets drunk with wine and curses are pronounced upon one of his sons who laughs at his father, father's drunkenness and scorns him. Uh, so we see that there's a, a new creation, a new humanity, a, another fall, and still redemption is being accomplished and it will be accomplished until the coming of Christ and the judgment of all things and the making new of all things. In verse 9, all of the focus shifts to the covenant which God established with Noah. There we read, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. God always relates to man through covenants. You understand that. God always relates to man, even prior to the fall. Always relates to man through covenants. Covenants define and, and clarify the nature of the relationship between God and man. They communicate the terms of the relationship. Remember that after God created Adam, He entered into a covenant with him. He entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. This was a covenant of works, for it required Adam's obedience that covenant was broken by Adam. Adam entered into a state of death. All of Adam's descendants are born into this broken covenant and are therefore born dead in their trespasses and sin. But thanks be to God that it pleased Him to make a covenant of grace wherein He freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them not obedience, we cannot give that, but requiring of them faith in Him, that is, faith in Christ, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe, that is, Second London Confession 7.2. This covenant, this covenant of grace, is revealed in the Gospel. First of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by further steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. This is Second London Confession 7.3. Do you understand what is being taught here? And rightly so. Man has always been in a covenantal relationship with God. Even Adam and Eve were in a covenant. It was a covenant of works. They're in the God garden. And the way to life was through obedience to the terms of that covenant. They fell, but God, by His grace, made another covenant. A 
Covenant of grace. What are the terms of it? Not obedience, because we cannot give it, but faith in Christ Jesus. It, it, it's all about believing upon Him and the obedience that He would offer up on our behalf. And when was this covenant of grace first announced? It was first proclaimed even to Adam himself and to his seed afterwards. Particularly this gospel, this good news of the covenant of grace was preserved in the line of, of Abel, Cain killed him, but the one that was raised up afterwards, the line of Seth, the gospel was present there. So from Adam to Noah, from Adam to Noah, two covenants were present in the world. From Adam to Noah, two covenants were present in the world. One, the covenant of works which Adam broke when he rebelled against his maker was there still in force. All who have ever lived are born under this covenant. Do you understand this, brothers and sisters? You must understand this. When you are born into this world, you are born in Adam. And you are born under that covenant of works which Adam broke. And what can that covenant bring you now? Can it bring you life? It is a covenant of death now. It can only bring death. It is a broken covenant. Adam broke it. Therefore, the covenant curses fell upon him and upon all of his posterity, all who descended from him. We are born into Adam. We are born into the covenant of works. The only thing that it can bring is death. The wages of sin is death. Adam sinned, and and so do we. It brings death, not life, for it is broken. But two, the covenant of grace ratified in Christ's blood was also present in the world from Adam to Noah. It was present in the world from Adam to Noah. It was not formally ratified, but it was there in the world in the form of promise. In the form of promise. This covenant of grace, we call it, because it is not dependent upon our obedience, but upon trusting in another. This covenant of grace would not be formally ratified until Christ died and rose again. This is why Christ took the cup as He celebrated that last Passover feast with His disciples and He held it up before them and He said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Though this covenant of grace was not instituted until the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it was present in the world from Adam to Noah in the form of promise. The good news of this covenant was preached to Adam. This good news was preserved in the line of Seth and Enoch and Noah. All who have ever been saved then and now have been saved by the power of this covenant, not the one made with Adam, not the covenant of works, but this covenant, the covenant of grace ratified in Christ's blood. The covenant of grace ratified in Christ's blood is the only thing that can save sinners fallen and in sin. And so it is correct to say that all who have ever lived were either in Adam or Christ. They were either under the covenant of works or of grace. Faith was and is the distinguishing factor. These words were as true then as they are now, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Noah, if we are to consider him as an individual, was born in Adam and under the broken covenant of works. 
But Noah, if we are to consider him as an individual, was justified, forgiven, saved, by faith in Christ. And concerning this, the scriptures are so clear. They actually speak directly to Noah as an individual. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet seen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This text says it so clearly. Yes, Noah was saved from the floodwaters uh, through an ark, but he was saved from his sins and received the righteousness of another by, by faith, by trusting in the promises of God concerning the Savior yet to come from his perspective. And God transacted another covenant with Noah. It was neither a covenant of works, nor was it a covenant of grace, but it was a covenant of mercy. And that is the covenant that is described to us here in this passage. It is not the covenant of works made with Adam. It is not a covenant of grace, but it was a covenant of mercy. We call it the Noahic covenant. That is the covenant that we see transacted here in in Genesis chapter 9. I want you to notice five things about this covenant. First of all, this covenant was established not only with Noah, but with all living things. This is made very clear in verses 9 through 10 and also 16 through 17. In verse 9 we read, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, Noah, and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and the beasts of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you. And in verse 17 we read, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This covenant was established not only with Noah, but with all living things. So, so all of creation right now is, is underneath this, this Noahic covenant, as we call it. Secondly, this covenant was established for all time. Look at verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And in verse 16, this covenant is called an everlasting covenant between God and and every living creature. Thirdly, notice the promise of this covenant. God promised, saying, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. In other words, I'm not going to do this again, God says. I'm not going to cut off all flesh through flood waters again. Why is this an important promise for us to have? Uh, can you imagine being Noah? You come off the ark, you've been delivered from the flood, and and you go out and you begin to sojourn, and you go out and you begin to multiply and fill the earth, and then all of a sudden the storm clouds are rising on the horizon and it begins to rain again, you know. (laughs) Is it going to happen again? No, there is this promise that, that God is not going to bring all of humanity to an end in this way again until the very end of time, but there's going to be... Uh, this this consistency to the natural world. The seasons are going to come and go. Days and weeks and months and years are are going to come and go until God makes all things new. God is not going to destroy all flesh by the waters of a flood. Again, that is the promise of this covenant. Fourthly, notice the terms of this covenant. And by that I ask this question, what is required of man for God to keep His end of the bargain? And the answer is nothing at all. 
It is a gracious and merciful covenant, and it's not dependent upon the performance of man. God simply promises, I will not do this again. Fifthly, notice the sign of this covenant. God's covenantal transactions are always accompanied by signs. So here a, a promise is made or, or terms to the covenant are communicated, but God in His mercy also gives us signs that is a visible or tangible uh, representations of, of the covenant that has been transactioned. They're visible tokens which symbolize the invisible features of the covenant. Uh, the covenant of works was symbolized by trees. The old covenant by circumcision. The new covenant by baptism in the Lord's Supper. To the covenant of mercy transacted with Noah, the Noahic covenant, God attached the sign of the rainbow. Verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. There's repetition here, is there not? God is constantly pointing to the sign that He attached to this particular covenant of mercy. It is not that rainbows did not exist prior to the establishment of this covenant with Noah, by the way, but that God in this moment made use of the rainbow as a sign of the covenant. I think in the created world, whenever there were clouds and rain and sunshine, there were rainbows. It's a natural phenomenon, but here God takes that natural phenomenon and attaches uh, his promises to it and said, here is a representation of the covenant that I have made with you. And the rainbow is a very fitting symbol for the covenant of mercy transacted with Noah. It's very fitting. The word for bow is the same word used for the bow of a warrior in the Hebrew language. I think this is something we should notice. And when one looks upon a rainbow, I love seeing rainbows, by the way. I, you know, Maybe those who live in different parts of the world aren't so impressed with them. But for us in Southern California, I mean, a thunderstorm rolls through in the summertime and then all of a sudden you see that rainbow. I mean, people will pull over their cars to look at it. Wow, we take pictures of it. I do the same thing. I mean, they're beautiful. They're incredible, aren't they? They grab your attention. It's hard to not notice them when they appear. Um, but, but think of, of what a bow looks like. There, there, there it is, uh, stretching across the earth uh, uh, like this. Um, the, the word for bow in this text is the same one used to describe the bow of a warrior. And there is a sense in which it looks as if God took his bow, God the great warrior king, and set it down upon the earth. Some have even noticed that the bow is facing upward towards heaven as if God is saying I'm done being at war with you in this way. I'm done aiming my bow and, and, and my dart, my, my arrow at you. I think it is also interesting to notice that the name Methuselah in the genealogy there of Seth means a dart, as if the, the meaning is after the days of Methuselah, God is going to shoot his dart at, at humanity. I think there's something to this. Some commentators, modern ones, kind of scoff at this and say it's going too far, noticing the symbolism here. But I think it's a, 
I think it's a valid observation that after the days of no, after the days of the flood, God is setting His bow down upon the earth. He's He's putting it in the clouds for us to see as a reminder that He has relented from judging the earth through the waters of the flood. It seems valid to me, but I find these words from Franz Delitzsch to be most beautiful, talking about the fitting symbolism of the rainbow. He says the label of the rainbow is sufficiently legible, shining upon a dark ground. It represents the victory of the light of love over the fiery darkness of wrath. Originating from the effect of the sun upon the dark cloud, it typifies the willingness of the heavenly to penetrate the earthly. Stretched between heaven and earth, it is a bond of peace between both, and spanning the horizon, it points to the all-embracing universality of the divine mercy. Who is this covenant of mercy transacted with? Everyone on earth. And here we have this sign given to everyone on earth who hasn't seen a rainbow, you know. And there it stretches from one place to another, spanning heaven and earth, reminding us of God's mercy. Notice that when the bow appears in the clouds, it is said to remind God of the covenant of mercy. Isn't that interesting? It is not said to be a reminder to us but a reminder to God of this covenant. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant, God says, that it is between me and you and every living creature. God cannot forget, friends. That is not what the text is saying, as if God is going about His business in heaven and then He sees the rainbow and He goes, Oh yeah, I forgot. I was about to wipe them out again, but I can't. You know, That's not it. Um, we, though, do sometimes feel as if God has forgotten His promises, don't we? We sometimes feel that way. And when we see the bow in the clouds, we are to be reminded of His covenant and of the fact that He remembers too, though He might seem to be at a great distance from us. I want to move towards conclusion by asking, why the Noahic covenant? Why this covenant of mercy or of a common grace, as some call it. Why this covenant of mercy? Why was it transacted? And I think there are three main answers, and we'll state them briefly. I'll state them brief, briefly. One, God promised to show mercy, that is, to preserve the natural order of things onto the end of time, so that salvation could be accomplished by Christ. I think this is the main thing here, so that salvation could be accomplished by Christ. Shortly after the fall, the, the promise of the covenant of grace was made to Adam. A seed from the woman would come to be a victorious and conquering king. That promise was present in the world, and that promise was reiterated to future generations. That is all true, but from Noah's perspective, uh, that, that seed of the woman had not yet come. Maybe some thought Noah was the one. Maybe he would be the one to truly bring us relief from our toils. He proved that he wasn't when he became drunk with wine and sinned. Uh, certainly we knew that he wasn't the one then. Uh, but, but here they are still looking forward to the accomplishment. And, and indeed, the, the covenant of mercy transacted with Noah was, was in order to leave time for this promise of God to be fulfilled. The Christ had to come. And so God promised, I will not wipe out all flesh as I have done here. Uh, but we'll leave room for the accomplishment of our redemption. The Christ had to come. He had to live in obedience to God's law. He had to live a perfect life and die that sacrificial death, shedding His own blood for the sin of others. Uh, this He has accomplished. Now we look back upon it, but it was not accomplished then. 
And so this covenant of mercy was given for the accomplishment of salvation to be fulfilled. Two, God promised to show mercy, that is to preserve the natural order of things to the end of, the, of time, so that the salvation accomplished by Christ could be applied to all of God's elect. Seems to be the explicit teaching of Peter. He talks about the patience of God, the mercy of God, and how some scoff at it, saying, you keep talking about the return of Christ, where is He? Things keep on going just as they always have. Uh, why is he so delayed? You know, and Peter urges the Christians to say, don't, don't, don't stumble, don't be discouraged by this, but understand that God has not yet returned because he is still doing his work and redemption has been accomplished. But it is still being applied. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So this is what God is doing as He delays, as He, as he delays the, the second coming of Christ. The elect are being brought to salvation continually. So we should give thanks to God for His patience. There is a part of us where we want to say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Would you just come now and make things, all things new? But He is accomplishing His purposes even now. Three God promised to show mercy, that is to preserve the natural order of things on to the end of time, so that His people would be sanctified also. Not only has He saved a people unto Himself, but He is even now sanctifying those people, making them more and more holy. Aren't you grateful for God's patience? Aren't you grateful for His kindness, uh, that He does not judge us immediately? He would do no wrong if He did. But He does not judge us immediately, but He is patient. He shows mercy. He shows mercy to those who are fallen and in sin. And He shows mercy even to His own people. He does not judge us immediately, but He sanctifies His people continually. For God, He could do all things at once, but we live in time, don't we? We, we live in time. Human history kind of unravels. And God is, is delaying His his return, the return of Christ, so that He might accomplish all of His purposes. He is sanctifying you even now, brothers and sisters. I know He is doing this for you. He is doing this for me. It is so very easy for us to grow discouraged in this process. And yet we have to look to God and to take encouragement from Him. He has promised to not leave us undone, but to finish the work that He began within us. Let us not presume upon the mercy of God. Let us not... Uh, scoff at his, his mercy and His patience, but let us take advantage of it in this sense that we, we, we spend our time here on this earth until the Lord takes us to glory or until Christ returns, pursuing Him with all that is in us, pursuing holiness in the Christian life, clinging to Him always, trusting in the promises that He has made. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for the Old Testament Scriptures. They are so rich. Jesus, you yourself have taught us that all of these scriptures point to you, that all the law, the prophets, and the Psalms are fulfilled in you. And so teach us, Lord, to read even the Old Testament with Christ in view. We thank you for this story. We thank you for even the strange things contained within it, the clean and unclean distinction, the, the prohibition against eating blood. Uh, even these things, though, have to do with Christ crucified and risen. And so we thank you for your scriptures. God, I pray for those who are listening now that all would be found trusting in you, Christ. That they would abandon all hope in their own righteousness. That they would confess their sins. That they would cling to you, Christ, placing all of their hope and trust 
in you and what you have accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for the covenant of grace, that you, God, are merciful and kind, that though we deserve only your wrath and judgment, you, out of love, have provided a Savior. For you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What wonderful news this is. Spirit of God, work amongst us to drive us to Christ and help us to cling to him always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.